The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Lily Leonardi, may have arrived on Earth under an agreement with God to be split in two, divided between the laws of church and state and the reality of the metaphysical. Born into a strict Catholic family, Lily was one of 10 children birthed in a period of 11 and a half years. From the start, she had Archangel Michael as her protector and guide, and to my way of thinking, Lily should have become a philosopher of the mystical. Instead, she worked in law enforcement for more than 25 years before retiring to pursue a career in writing. In 1984, Lily was appointed to serve as the first female police officer with the city of Arnold, Pennsylvania. She broke barriers again in 1994 when she was appointed the first female chief of police for Chatham College. Other cops called her the Blue Witch because she could see, hear, and smell things others could not. In 1998, Lily joined the FBI Pittsburgh Division as the Community Outreach Specialist where she served until 2010. Lily managed to suppress her interactions with angels until the fateful date of 9-11, when the FBI Pittsburgh office assigned her to Shanksville, the site of the crash of Flight 93. On 9-11 and in the following days, Lily was utilized by the FBI to address law enforcement, government, and social service agency representatives assisting with evidence recovery and preparations for two Flight 93 memorial services. She also escorted families to the crash site for the memorial and spent 13 days with those broken families. It was on that site, Lily says, she had her first awakening through a profound mystical experience. Lily, welcome to NDE Radio. Thanks, Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, Lily, you've said your parents were educators and strict Catholics, but you were nicknamed Tiger because of your red hair and warrior mentality. But there was a, a mystical aspect to your life as well. So before we get to 9-11, I want to ask you about the blue man with wings you saw in your room from the ages of three to seven. When did, uh, when did he, what did he look like? Uh, and did he tell you things? Well, it kind of happened in, a, in a, a weird way. My mom reminded me um, it had to do with, and I, I don't want to jump ahead, but when I wrote the books, she had come down to have uh, lunch with me, like right after Christmas before the books were published. And uh, she uh, asked me what the book was about. And I said it was, um, uh, she asked if it was about the angels at the crash site. I said, yes. And then she asked me, did I put anything negative in it about her since we hadn't gotten along most of our lives? <laughs> and I told her that at this point in my life, I realized that 50% of the blame was on my shoulder. So saying poor me and bad mommy wasn't, you know, what the book was about. Mm -hmm. And then she said something very curious. She said, uh, what about the blue man with wings? And I got very upset with her and I asked her, uh, how did she know about the blue man with wings? And she proceeded to tell me that when I was very young, she estimated maybe between like three and seven years old. I used to come down in the middle of the night. Well, you know, late night for kids that age. And she and daddy would be watching Johnny Carson or uh, 
one of the, you know, the late night shows and Benny Hill probably. <laughs> and um, I would tell them that the blue man with wings was upstairs and daddy would obligingly, you know, take me back up, pat you on the head, put you back in bed, look under the bed and open up. We had like this closet that you could walk into. Mm. Um, and he said that nobody was there. And I used to say to him, that he was standing in the corner smiling at me and he glowed blue. So mom said I dubbed him the blue man with wings and they just assumed he was my imaginary friend. But, you know, after she said that and I got angry with her for having not confirmed that for me years before. And she told me that in that age, people would have thought I was, had lost my mind or was weird or, uh, the, the devil was haunting or, you know, something that related to that strict, you know, Catholicism, uh, in, in that time period. And so I told her that it was, it had harmed me. I'd been walking around all these years thinking just that, that I had lost my mind and it made it even harder with what we're going to talk about, you know, in a little bit about the flight 93 encounter, I told her, had I been raised to think it was okay by her, it would have been a lot, a lot easier in my lifetime. Sure. So he was um, as tall as the ceiling from what I can remember, because I was very young, beautiful hair that draped down and, um, and the, the wings were, you know, touched the ceiling up uh and but draped down and he always looked like he was wearing something like an ancient robe uh, that was tied at his waist with rope and then he just glowed in this brilliant what which would nowadays would be called like a cobalt blue Um, and that's why I called him the blue man with wings yes did he talk to you at all not like you and I are talking or like um, it was like kind of, I learned later on, it's kind of like the way the angels, like the whispers in the ear, like mm-hmm. my right ears where I've always heard them. So he talked to me like that. I guess they call it when it's channeling like telepathic, but I could hear him clearly in my ear, no different than the way, but I don't recall watching his lips m- move mm-hmm. from what, what I can remember. What did he tell you? Well, the only conversation I really remember distinctly was I asked him what time, one time what his name was, who he was, and he said he was Michael and he was my guardian. Oh. Now, he helped you through your first Holy Communion, too, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> well, again, and I don't want to be, I don't want to make it sound like I'm being uh, terrible about the Catholic Church because that's not my intent. Uh, but it was, you know, I was seven years old. I was terrified of the nuns, as most kids were back in my age group. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, well, see, I don't have to tell you. <laughs> and all I remember is like for the days of practicing, you know, the ruler smacking the hands, telling me not that, you know, everybody, all the young people, you know, the young <laughs> children, not to embarrass them in front of the bishop. So um, I walked in and I do. Uh, I, I walked in and, you know, everybody was in the church. I don't remember how many kids were in the class, but we were all walking down on both sides. I turned and saw my parents and my siblings. And I'm, I'm sure just like you, 
you know, everybody had their pew, even though their name wasn't on it, you know, back then <laughs> yes. where he sat. And then I remember getting very nervous about the marching. So we went through all the original and then went in up to receive communion. And when I got up there and right after the bishop had given me, you know, the host, I kind of froze thinking, oh, my God, which way do I turn? (laughs) And I was panicking and I heard his voice, you know, tell me that, you know, it would be all right. And it was the first time I felt his touch. He moved me in a direction that allowed for me to march the right way. You know, like I felt him and my entire body felt warm, like like a big blanket had just uh, been placed over my shoulders. So when we got home that day, we were also celebrating my seventh birthday. So it was birthday and communion party. Mm. And my dad, who had been an army ranger in World War II, he served over in the South Pacific. He told me that my march uh, resembled that of like military, you know, per, per, um, the military training he'd gone through. And um, I told him that the blue man had my guardian angel, <laughs> you know, and he just patted me on the head and said, okay, yeah, that was what happened. Don't that, that's nice. You know, placated me a little bit. Yes. So um, I remember that very distinctly. And when mom and I had that conversation, all of it started to come back, you know, like it was like, Pandora's box opened and so many memories of moments and times of, mm. of when I could feel him or hear him when I was deathly afraid, you know, of things that were transpiring. Now you had a, a near death experience as the result of an operation that uh, Archangel Michael had warned you not to have uh, something about a needle in your neck. And well, uh, tell us about that. Tell us what well, happened. What actually happened is I had a, I had a illness that required a hysterectomy and um, I uh, was laying on the, uh, you know, the operating table and the anesthesiologist had just given, administered some kind of a medication. And I heard in my ear to get off the table, the operation is not going to go well. So I got up off the table with that, whatever was in my arm. And um, he, I said to the doctor, I changed my mind. I don't want to have the surgery. And the anesthesiologist said to me, it's just a chemical reaction to the medication. Lay back down. And I said, no, I don't want to have it. I want to leave. They laid me back down. They put the mask over my face and I went under. The next thing I remember is waking up and during the course of the uh, the operation, the doctor punctured my bladder twice, so the uh, urine had gone throughout my you know my body, and Yikes. I was in extreme pain. Um, and um, just it was it was a terrible uh, situation for me. Medically, I was very sick, and. Um, so a few days later, I don't remember, I, I don't do time, two days, whatever. I got, um, I think it was like sepsis, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they gave me um, a medication. I don't remember what it was. I think it was called Caflex. And I had an allergic reaction to it because mm-hmm. I have a lot of sensitivities 
to um, antibiotics. And so everything started to go haywire with um, my vascular system collapsed and it wouldn't hold uh, the, um, the antihistamines or whatever, or the IV drip, they, uh, they, it collapsed and my arm, wherever they had everything were swelling. So everybody was all around me panicking and, and, um, uh, the nurse or anesthetist, whoever it was, she started like poking me in every direction and she came up to my neck and I told her not to touch my neck. Cause I heard in my ear, don't allow her to touch your neck. So I told her, don't touch my neck. And she started saying, I don't remember the conversations. And I told her that if she touched my neck, I was going to sue her to just get away. So they were all looking and running around trying to figure out whatever. And she, I, she said, I'm going to call the anesthesiologist on call and have them come up. And so I was laying there and it was like, almost like you lift it up above a little bit, you know, like you were looking, you were looking at it from a different perspective, like a higher perspective. And all of a sudden I saw my dad who had been dead for about four months, uh, come in the room. He looked younger and leaner and probably, you know, at the best part of his life, maybe in his forties or fifties. And he came in and Um, He stood by the bed and he said to me that my heart was weak and it had been broken by many things that had transpired in my life. If I wanted to come with him, all I had to do was take his hand and he stretched out his hand. And I told him that I didn't want to go anywhere until I had 10 years by the beach with a man, a nice man. He told me then get up and fight. And so all of a sudden, like, Um, I felt myself kind of like back in my body or, you know, uh, like I could feel the physicality of my humanity again is the best way of saying it. And um, the anesthesiologist came in and as soon as he did, he fought the vein boom and everything, the medication started going and daddy stood there for a short time. He smiled and then I saw him just like he didn't walk away. It just like he vanished, like he just not in a like a negative way, but a very peaceful way. Mm-hmm. And so I think you said there was a light behind him that he went back. Yeah, well, he was illuminated. He wasn't like I would see you or someone. He he was fully formed, but he was illuminated, like, in a, around a white mist, like, you know, white misty like light you know like um that he was standing there but i knew he wasn't there i knew he was he had come from another space or time yes well i guess we've come up to 9-11 you've said that uh until 9-11 you were hiding your soul so tell us what you saw at the crash site of flight 93 on that fateful day well, can I clarify for people that what that means to me that I was hiding my soul? Of course. So for all my life, like what I had said to mom when she we talked about the blue man with wings, I felt so weird. The only persons like 
that I could talk to. Like my grandmother on my dad's side, my paternal grandmother was a little bit mystical. So you could go and talk to her about things. And she never made me feel negative about what I was seeing or feeling. And she would encourage you to go ahead and just keep believing. And then my dad, uh, unlike my mom, my, my dad had a little bit different view. He had like an office downstairs where he had a lot of books. And most of those books were about saints and religion and comparative religion and angels and different things. And I can remember one time when I came back from Ireland, I was a young woman in my 20s. He I I mentioned to them that I thought I had a uh, past life experience or a regression. I was Ireland and my mother immediately said, oh, that's blasphemy. And my dad looked at me and he <laughs> nudged his head for me to come downstairs after I got berated. And uh, I followed him downstairs and he opened a book about past life regression that he read for me like a little passage from it that the church had approved it to like eight or nine uh AD eight or 900 AD yes, uh, where they outlawed it. And you being a minister, you'll know better than I. And I believe it was Pope Gregory, but I'm not sure. But daddy had read it to me and told me that he felt like the church had reversed their decision about prior lives because it was a means to control. If you thought you had more than one life, then you could behave badly in this one. So he told me to just keep my heart and mind open to all the possibilities. And um, so that was very helpful for me. But at the same time, just like with the introduction you made, you know, I lived in two like two worlds. I, I lived in this analytical world that always required duty, responsibility and quick you know, quick, uh, quick responses to negative scenarios. And it kind of led with it. And again, like what my dad said about, uh, you know, my heart being broken. Um, I think when your heart is closed to your mind may be willing, but your heart, it requires for the intuitive gifts to really, uh, be a part of your daily life. It does require complete connectivity of mind, body, and soul. Otherwise, you fight with yourself constantly. And so I had many dark nights of the soul uh, where I tried to talk myself out of things, but it became quicker and faster. And then on 9-11, what happened, like you said, I worked for the Pittsburgh Division of the FBI and volunteered to take mobile command up to stage it in preparation for the all points response. And um, when I got there, I was with two other gentlemen. One one had driven the mobile command because it's basically a big RV that for communications that they can, you can have satellites and you can communicate, you know, in all directions. And we needed to stage it in the proper place because there would be an encampment then that would begin out of that with law enforcement, government and social services, Red Cross, Salvation Army. You know, we had to stage it to, it, to get ready for everybody else to arrival. And so uh, when we walked out upon the field, anybody that's familiar with 
the Flight 93 National Memorial, or they can go online and look. It's the area where uh, 40 trees were planted. So we stood up above like what would have been the epicenter where the plane had crashed and observing everything. And what I remember first uh, was the smells of diesel fuel and pine trees, because um, this was in a a rural area um, that was um, had once been, I, I, I think it was a landfill or a mine and they were in the middle of revitalizing it, um, like with new wild grasses and different things. And um, so the smell was the first. It was it was it choked. Uh, I, uh, I was allergic to pine trees as a child, so I didn't like the smell to begin with. So that was the first sensation. And then the second one was hearing. You were in the middle of a rural as I said, area, a small forest, and there were no birds chirping. You didn't even see a squirrel running in any direction. So it was eerily, it was very quiet, like almost like a, like a a spooky movie or whatever, you know? Yes. And before the monster comes, you know, like jumps (laughs) out on you. Yes. And then the trees held debris, which would have been human remains. Um, and there was debris everywhere. I mean, so it stood out there almost like in a surreal kind of mindset. And then I remember um, feeling like uh, three different personalities, like, or personas there. The first one, I was there because my position was to report back what we would need, what ancillary services. So you had to survey to see what was in the immediate uh, and give a report to the bosses of, and make, you know, the connections with the organizations you'd already trained with for uh, major critical incidents. And um, then like the mom thinking about how blessed I was to have been able to talk to my daughter before I hit, um, you know, out that way. And then um, I remember praying you know, for um, my family, my dad's family was Middle Eastern, and they had already talked about how there might be a Middle Eastern connection. And all I could think about is the individuals that I had grown up uh, with, and, you know, all my life, all they ever invoked was uh, God, family, and country. So it was, again, very, very, um, I felt broken. Uh, so uh, as I started to, to, to pray, um, again, if you look at the, the, this, this, like the, how that is situated. Uh, uh, it allowed um, for like you to see everything and off to like almost direct across a little to the left, there were ponds of water. And I don't know if they were natural or man-made it to this day, I never asked. But on top of the water, it looked like shimmer of lights, like playing off the water. And my immediate uh, recognition of it was it must have been fish had gotten killed, something must have fell in, 
or the fuel sprayed into the water and the fish were now dead and their scales were like, you know, the sun was shining down. So it was like the sparkles coming, you know, the, the light, the way that reflected. And, um, but pretty soon the light got really intense so that it drew my attention like continuously. And I stared at it and I just started praying not to lose my mind. (laughs) You know, I was there, I wanted to work, I wanted to do, I wanted to serve, I wanted to be of service to whatever that meant in what capacity. And then all of a sudden it, the light like turned into this really pristine looking like misty cloud, like so white. I I, I can't explain it. I've, I've never seen anything since like the pureness of that white color mm. and uh, almost like, like when a big lightning bolt, the color of that, you know, like that white. And so um, all of a sudden it, it opened up and what I saw around was I called a legion of angels. Um, there were so many of them, you know, originally before I did like therapies and did some forms of hypnosis and EMDR, I thought there were hundreds, but in the breakdown of the, uh, you know, through the, uh, tra- the hypnosis and that, I learned that there were probably thousands of them and they were tall, almost the height of where we were standing, like equivalent to it, which would have probably been a good, maybe nine, 10 feet, maybe 12 feet above the um, crash site. And um, there were, they looked, appeared to be in female male facial features. Again, um, they were garbed differently than what I'd always seen the blue man with wings. They had Roman centurion like armor on. Yes. And then um, blue, brown and blonde hair of every variation. And then their skin color was varied too. And the way I like to relate it to others is that they estimate that 60 to 70 cultures were affected that day, like between the three sites, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon. And so I like to believe that um, the tone of the skin was reflective of all that were lost that day of every one of the cultures. And so um, they were in military rows as if they were ready for battle or prepping for battle or about to march. And then out in front was one uh, archangel, and I recognized him as Michael. But he appeared to be the only one with a saber, and it was angled down toward the ground. And what I came to learn later on uh, when I did a presentation at a church, there was a former commander or lieutenant colonel, I don't remember what his rank was. But when I shared about the angelic encounter, he came up after and asked me, had anybody ever explained the saber and the angling of it toward the ground? And I said, no. And what he shared was with, like, if you look at a cadet that just graduates from the military academy, the saber is angled up in the air. 
that reflects that they've never been tried in battle. When the saber is angled down toward the ground, it means they have been tried in battle and had been victorious. So what I sensed was uh, fear at first because thinking I'm losing my mind. And so all of a sudden, like when we had arrived, there were two groups of men, one to the left, which were uh, FBI agents that were part of the, uh, I think, a counterterrorism group or from one of the resident agencies that lived, were in proximity because where the crash flight, the, the flight crashed is about 70 miles from Pittsburgh, 70, 90 miles. It takes about an hour and a half to drive from Pittsburgh to the crash site. Uh, several other, and then the around, it was all the state troopers that had set up stage for to keep the area secure because people and news reporters were already trying to walk on the crimes, you know, the scene and stuff. Mm. And then to the right of where we stood were a couple gentlemen that were either from the FAA or in TSB, I don't remember at this point. And so um, the right of us were in semi-protective gear. And I, all, of us, all I remember was that one of them yelled that we needed to get off because we the, the fire looked to be smoldering more and we were in just street clothes. I was in a black skirt, a white shirt black heels and stockings and and the other one was in fatigues because he was the lead mechanic and the uh the one of the agents that came with that followed behind the the mobile command was in a suit you know Mm. and so i looked at at the angels and i started to pray again and ask god again if I'm really seeing them to give me another, give me a sign. And, you know, like in in retrospect, I'm thinking, what other sign did you need? Like he just (laughs) threw a legion of angels in front of you and um, doubting Thomas, the analytical mind, like go into the dark side, like I need a sign. So we moved down off the bluff. And the first thing we encountered was a suitcase and um, um, it was opened and the contents kind of like sprawling out a little bit. And the clothes were a little bit singed. And so were the contents, but they were still, recog- you know, they were just singed. They were recognizable that it was somebody's suitcase. And all of a sudden, one of the guys said out loud, the suitcase made it, where's the bodies or something to that effect. And for the first time, it was like you heard sound, you know, and somebody was recognizing that we were walking on this surreal uh, field. I looked back, the angels were still there. And I said, Lord, if this is you, please, I need a sign. We walked up a little bit further and there was a Bible on the ground. And again, it was singed, but intact. And I don't know if it was the same guy or one of the men, one of the two men I was with. He again said something about where's the, you know, the bodies were. And um, I looked back for a third time and I said, God, if it's you, please um, 
please, I just need to know it too. And all of a sudden, like this wind came in, the Bible opened, and to the best of my recollection, it opened to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And out of nowhere, this big brown hawk lifted up off the ground and went into the air. And I heard in my ear, like your sign has been received. I turned around and the angels were gone. So I tucked it in, didn't say anything to either one of them. And I went back to work and did what I needed to do. Was it later under the uh, EMDR therapy that you recalled um, um, Michael saying something to the effect that it's time humanity to lower their sword and raise up their hearts yeah what happened is like a year later for the anniversary um i i went up i had to argue to go up but i wanted to go up i told them i'd spent like you know i got assigned to the united airlines humanitarian response team and the families Hmm. so i got housed with the families and you were on call 24 7 so anything that was needed for the families in the early morning briefings with the airlines. That was my responsibility. And so um, I told my bosses the year later, I wanted to go see the family and the United Airlines crew because I'd spent spent 10 days in close contact with them day and night. And and I don't want to make it sound like it was just glorious me. There were 1,200 individuals that worked from the varying organizations and I never in my entire life to this day saw a more compassionate response everybody there did everything they could to make it easier on the families and the colleagues and also to be kind and caring to each other because it was a brutal time in the history of our nation and so I don't want it to be like oh I'm you know I was the only, everybody there, no matter what their job was, they didn't care. They did everything they could, you know, even if it was, whether it was an investigation part or taking out the the garbage, everybody worked in tandem. But that first anniversary, I actually wanted to go up to see if I could see the angels again. And so, of course, I didn't, but I could feel the energetically um, that there was something greater there going on. And so in the middle of the beginnings of, of um, the ceremony, the first the recognition ceremony, um, I questioned again, was it true? Is it part of my mind? Is it? And um uh, they were in the middle of like an aria. I don't remember if it was Ave Maria or what it was. All of a sudden, this big wind came in and reverberated off of the makeshift metal structure. And I sensed that, okay, God just answered you, shut your mouth because now the lightning bolt's coming, you know? And, <laughs> and so I went home that night. I wrote about the angels because I was already having health issues with my stomach and respirate, respiratory. And I thought, if I die, nobody's going to know what happened there. And um, so I wrote whatever it was. It ended up coming to be one of the chapters in the book. 
I tucked it in the book my dad gave me, Jesus, the Son of Man. He loved Khalil Gibran because that was part of his Marianite faith. You know, Khalil Gibran was considered one of their prophets. And um, I tucked it in to uh, chapter 12, Mary Magdalene, because she's one of my favorite favorite saints. And um, I always felt like, you know, by Catholic standard, she was the bad girl of the, the apostles. Well, so I felt like so was I. I was kind of like had the two personalities, too. So she and I were in good company. <laughs> and um, so uh, the next day, then uh, I put it there because I knew if I died. My daughter would take that book because it was daddy's and then mine. And she and my father were as close as daddy and I were because he helped raise her. Um, and I'll share in a minute why. So um, I called Father Ron Lundgren. Father was part of like the FBI leadership committee. Plus he um, he did his own radio show about, um, you know, like spiritual events and different things. And I called him and asked him if I could come talk to him. And he said, yes. So a couple of days later, I went and we were having a conversation and I told him, but it transpired. And he said, so what's the problem? And he said, what, what, what is wrong? And I said, well, I'm not worthy of this. Why would God give it to me? And he said, so you know better than God. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, before, when you were just a particle of dust, this was ordained for your life. Um, God knew that no matter what transpired, you would give testimony. And I said, oh, I know, give it to the big mouth, right? He said, basically. And he said to me, why are you not worthy? And I said, well, Father, I've never shared with you that I got pregnant and married at 16 years old. That it was, My daughter was born in 1972, and I was required to go through all this church uh, interviews the nuns first and the Monsignor and then the Bishop who all told me what a terrible human being I was for first getting pregnant and second wanting to keep my child. And only through the grace of God, that the fact that my, my child's father who wanted to marry me was older, he was 19 or 20. And they couldn't tell him what to do, you know, but they told me that I should have been given the child to a good family through Catholic charities. And basically I was going to burn in eternal hell because I had done this. Yikes. So I said to him, so they put into my head what a terrible human being I was. Sorry. And that's why I always felt like Mary Magdalene was not what she had been, but the doctrine of the church had made her that way, you know, like, yes. and so, um, um, I told him, and he started laughing at me. <laughs> and I said, this isn't funny to me, you know, and he said, I'm just laughing. He said, do you remember who Jesus Christ was? I said, Father, I don't need a damn religious re- lesson right now in the middle of all this. And he just said, do you remember who he was? I said, yes, I pray to him all the time. He said, do you remember he chose for his disciples? I said, yes. He said he chose the murderer, the thief, the tax collector. I said, he said, and do you remember why he came to earth? 
I said, yeah, to experience humanity. He said, yes, and his disciples were chosen because they would be more relatable to humanity than when they found him, when they came to know him. And it all of a sudden it dawned on me what he was trying to tell me. And then, um, so I left and it took me a couple more years before I told anybody. I shared it with my boss um, first because I really grew to admire him and respect him and, and love him as a, in fellowship, like spiritual fellowship. And um, he had been a responder. He was in charge of Quantico Labs when uh, 9-11 happened. So he was responsible to collect all the evidence from uh, all three sites. And he and I had become, we'd had a lot of conversation. And he reminded me of my dad. He was big and he had served in the Marines and just a burly kind of a guy, a big, great family man, just had a lot of the traits that I respected about and admired in my dad. And so I told him what had happened. And he was the one that encouraged me to go get some help because he knew I was sick. I had multiple problems, even gallbladder and ended up with pneumonia with it. And uh, just too much complexity for my age, you know, with the, the illnesses and stuff. And so it took me another few years because I knew deep down I would end up losing my job if I told anybody about the angels and stuff. And so the bottom line was that uh, finally in 2008, uh, because I had so many medical problems and was, I knew I was in the state like of if somebody didn't help me, I was going to, my mind was going to be gone for good. The FBI at headquarters finally connected me with a psychologist to do a diagnosis and prognosis. And I like, um, uh, so I went to the first one and she was so kumbaya. I, I couldn't stand it. It was like, she wasn't getting what I was trying to tell her from the analytical mindset. It was just like this airy fairy kind of a thing. And I hate to say that out loud, but that's exactly like it. She wasn't getting how intense it was for me. So I asked them to find someone else. They did. And then this one was not suited for me either. Every time I came in, she asked me if I was suicidal or homicidal. And it was twice a week at that point that the FBI was requiring, you know, me to go. And um, when she asked me at one day, I told her if I was suicidal or homicidal, I would just come in here, take you out and take myself out. I wouldn't acknowledge it to you. <laughs> And I scared her. So she didn't want to work with me. <laughs> and so they found another one um, and uh, she didn't want to work with the federal government. Um, after they called her three or four times, uh, I called her and I explained to her on the phone that if somebody didn't help me, the abyss was going to swallow me whole and I was never going to come out. And so I went to see her and the first talk, we were kind of deciding whether I would, she would see me or I felt comfortable with her. I don't remember what I said to her, but when I came back to like the moment of reality, she had tears in her eyes and she said to me, do you think if I tell you that I've been collecting angels for 12 years, since I was 12 years old, that you think we could work together? And I knew God had found 
who was good for me. It was through working with her, wasn't it, that you yes. got into EMDR? Yes. And mm-hmm. I, before before we run out of time, and and actually this is turning into an hour show, which is great, I want to get to the Blessed Mother and how okay. that came out in your mind. All right. So go back to 2001 real quick. And okay. so uh, the Saturday after 9-11, um, I had already been up. Uh, what was Seven Springs. It's a resort where they had housed all the airlines and the family members. I asked for time to go home to get some clothes because memorials were coming and I wanted to look professional. I went home to get some clothes, but also for one other reason. My brother, who's a contractor, I asked him to break ground in the corner of my yard wherever from every back window you could see. And I asked him to dig it we were going to put ponds in a grotto to the blessed mother no idea why i just told him we had to do it and so fast forward to um uh, 2008 um i'd gone through three months of emdr eye movement desensitization reprocessing which helps to bring all of the like the negative elements out forward so that you can address you know what you saw felt hear heard smelled And so I came out of like the EMDR and although it's not hypnotic in nature, it was for me, it would take me somewhere else. And the, the psychologist was crying and I asked her what happened. And she said that there were three voices that came out that shared more information about what transpired. It was no longer the gore and what I had witnessed. It was more the spiritual event of the angelic encounter. Hmm. And I said, well, her, what do you mean three voices? Because she audio taped everything for, for me. What do you mean three voices? And she said something else. And I said, oh, great. Now you're going to tell me that I've splintered in, and I have multi-personalities and you can write the next book on Sybil. <laughs> and um, she said, that's not what I think happened. And I said, well, what do you think happened? And she said the word channeling. And I said to her, what the hell does that mean? And she said, I think you're channeling angels. And that was like a new concept for me. And I asked her if I could hear it. So there were multiple voices. I think it was two men and one female. And what they shared was like prophetic, like, like more language, old, old language, not like my Pittsburghese, you know, that forgets the vowels or. Uh, the endings, the G, it was yes. prophetic, very, I don't know, like cultured. And, and what they said in plain language was the angels were sent to pursue the defeat of violence. And Archangel Michael, and I had an illustration put in the book. Um, um, and what he said that there was, we were supposed to lay down our swords and embrace our hearts. Mm. Um, That uh, the warrior had beckoned. That's why they arrived like that, that we were told to lay down our weapons and move toward the light and love of an open heart. And that the blessed mother had arrived too. And she took the souls back of those that were willing to go home. 
And then I remembered seeing her and I remembered all the angels around her, almost like a half moon perimeter that they were around the entire site in this half moon shaped legion. And um, so it all came forward as to why, like in the middle of all this chaos, I wanted to make that grotto. It was to honor her, but I didn't remember it for seven years until the EMDR sessions. Amazing. Well, let's take uh, some time now, if if that's all right with you, to discuss the four books you've written and what what each book represents in your uh, life. That's great. So the first one is In the Shadow of a Badge, and it's the memoir about what transpired at Flight 93, the angels, and what I called my spiritual homecoming, like I moved from the dark nights of the soul to the opening of my spiritual like awakening. And they all came from the journals I kept that the, that the, the doctor uh, suggested that the first book was all the journal from the journals I kept. Then the second book is called the white light of grace. And it's uh, like the reflections of, how I began to understand more and more what it meant to be an intuitive um, and that the gift is there for all of us to embrace. And I just trusted that it was came from God and, and I'm very comfortable with it. And then the third book is entitled the blue witch within, and it's, it's my first fiction, but it's, it's written a lot of based off a lot of the folklore, my grandmother, the Arabic folklore that she shared sometimes when she would tell us that we were from the Canaanites and the Canaanites and then early Christians that went up into the hills above Beirut um, to do to spread the word of Jesus and did it in a different they didn't become the Roman Catholic Church. They became more like the original Gnostic Christians, where they believed that the female was as important as the male part of whatever transpired. They believed Mary Magdalene was the apostle of apostles and in some ways may have even been his wife, you know, and, and different things. So what I did in the fictional account, I took a, a day police officer, female police officer, that realizes she has intuitive gifts. And when she seeks counsel from her grandmother, her grandmother tells her that she's a descendant. Her ancestors are all female healers and go back to the first century on the night that Jesus was born and a prophetess in their family named Anna accepted that it was the Christ child and they gave her the gift of healing hands. And so each generation of women that came to pass down for 2000 years became intuitives with healing powers. Your grandmother told you you had healing hands. My grandmother told us, my grandmother was very mystical and she believed that we had the ability. She was also very Catholic too. So she kind of like teetered between but she was open to have discussions. She was very Catholic in her processes with church and communion and rosary twice a day and holy days of obligation and no meat on Wednesdays and Fridays. And But she also had a side to her uh, that was very open. And how I know she didn't 
only extend it to me. After I wrote my first book, there were some problems with siblings about some of the information I put in there. That, And I have two first cousins. Their mother and my father were brother and sister. They reached out to me to tell me that our situ, which means grandmother in Arabic, had shared stories with them about how mystical our family, that there was mysticism in the family, and that intuitive gifts, everybody had the ability to tap in and connect in that way with the, with God. But people were afraid of it. You know, um, for me, my dad used to tell me I was too stupid to be afraid, and he didn't mean it in a bad way. He meant that um, I went forward. I, I allowed myself to open my mind to think, you know, differently or whatever. Obviously, when you get pregnant at 16 in 1972, in a time when if you would have murdered somebody, it would have been more acceptable for a young woman. Um, I probably marched to my own drum. And it wasn't my drum, but it was what I was hearing. I just wasn't knowledgeable enough to know that that was the guidance from above. Did your grandmother uh, give you any advice concerning angels? He talked a lot about trusting like your intuition and what you saw. What she would see uh, was she would dream about somebody and then see roses and smell roses. And then within the next days, that person would die. So <laughs> she had premonitions about um, about more like death, like, you know, so we would talk a lot about that because I would tell her I could see and hear and smell things that I didn't know where they came from. She's the one that helped me become comfortable that they were gifts from God is daddy helped to expand my mind to believe that anything was capable. You know, he used to tell, tell uh, his children, but when I would doubt something, he had two sayings that um, you limit yourself in your own mind. And the best way to get even is to be a success. Um, he reiterated that time and time again. So he expanded my my grandmother opened my mind to to believe and daddy expanded it so I could trust that it was from God. They were devout Catholics. And yet your Catholic church gave you such a hard time when you were pregnant. Yep. How did your family reconcile the hard time that you were given? Um, that was one of the things when we talked earlier, my mother was very cruel about the pregnancy. My father, on the other hand, told me that he didn't approve of, of my behavior, that it went against everything that he believed in, but that the God, the baby, a child was a gift from God, no matter how it came, and we would act accordingly. And uh, my father never said a cruel word to me that wasn't cruel and never said anything after that. They helped, you know, my marriage was very troubled. Uh, my ex-husband became an, a function, highly functional alcoholic, caused a lot of problems uh, within my parents when um, I told them I was coming home and getting a divorce. My father said nothing. My mother was upset again and basically told me that I got pregnant. Now I'm going to embarrass them with a divorce. And um, But even though she was always upset with me about what she continued to think was 
my behavior pattern. Um, they helped raise my daughter when I moved back home and went into law enforcement because I had shift work. Um, but my father and my daughter were inseparable. Uh, she connected to him like I did from the moment she was born. They had this in, this bond that was just special. But in all fairness to my siblings and my nieces and nephews, my father believed that children were the gold and silver of the world and that we should treat them accordingly. So. Uh. Sounds like a very sweet man. He um, was big as a door. And if he smacked you, you felt it for days. <laughs> but his heart was 10 times the size of his, of his yeah. body. Yeah, he was. He was a good. He was, a, he was the kind of person anybody would be privileged to have as a father. What does your daughter think of the vision you had at 9-11? She's kind of like my mom <laughs> in some yeah. ways. Now, my grandchildren are very different. Uh, my daughter doesn't say anything negative, but it scares her. Uh, so we don't talk a lot about it. I share more with my older grandchildren, my oldest granddaughter, especially. She has her first son. Uh, he's just turned a year old the other last week. And she's always been more. Um, and then the, the young one that's 13, she's pretty cool about it, except sometimes the teenage stuff gets in the way. Um, but but I, I've I've acquired... Uh, two mentors in the last 25 years that helped me. Both of them are in their 80s. And when something happens that I, I haven't experienced before, I call primarily the one that lives here in Pittsburgh. I'm not allowed to give her name. But um, she and Father Ron were very close, and that's how I met her. And she's helped me immensely. And I have a close friend that lives out in, in California, and uh, we talk a lot about things. So I've, I've got, I've acquired my own community. And then I've, over the years, I've had a lot of people come to ask for, for help. You know, um, the hardest part um, is what I hear for other people is sometimes listening to it for myself. I struggle. My human still struggles for myself, but not for other people sometimes. Of course. Well, Lily, I'm sorry to say we're run out of time for today. Okay. Mm-hmm. But so many thanks to you for sharing your incredible experiences with angels and with uh, Mary, the Blessed Mother, and uh, your near-death experience. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, please go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. And listen for free to the complete NDE Radio library. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.